When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In today's episode, we conclude our rewatch of the leftovers with the final episode, The Book of Nora. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'm not crying, you're crying. Shut up. Ah, fuck it, I'll just be over here wiping these tears away with a big squid. And here we are. It is the finale of The Leftovers and the final episode of Season 4 of Big Squid. It's all come together. And this episode was actually supposed to come out last week, but I don't know quite what happened. I watched the finale of The Leftovers and I've watched this episode a lot. I've watched this series a few times. I've watched this episode in particular a lot. Like a lot, especially certain scenes. And it's funny, it's a little bit like the comic The Invisibles. Every time I experience it, I always feel like I experience it in a different way. So I had to kind of sit on it for a little bit longer and just sort of think about what it meant this time, you know, what my thoughts were, where I came down on... Uh, the divide, especially the Nora part of the episode. And then did I really want to share that with anyone? Anyway, I did a lot of thinking. So we are a week late, but we finally got here. So this is, in case you weren't sure or you'd forgotten, this is the final episode of season four of Big Squid. Look, there's more to tell you about, but I'll tell you about that after we have gone into this. I don't want to dilly-dally. I want to dig into this final episode. So, for the last time, we are discussing The Leftovers, and then we will get back to what is happening later. Ah, this episode. What a beautiful episode. This episode is entitled The Book of Nora. My name is Nora Elizabeth Jameson Durst. I hereby indemnify all individuals for the procedure that's about to occur. Today is the day I'm leaving to be with them. I'm ready to go now. We begin with Nora recording her testimonial. She is going to use the machine to travel to the other place, the place where the departed travelled to on that fateful day. She hears the scientists talking and asks them what they're discussing. They want her to record her testimonial again because they do not believe her. They think she is just saying the words that Nora believes they want to hear. Nora is offended. 
She stayed outside their house all night, followed them to their machine. She doesn't give a shit what they believe. And I don't lie, says Nora. They ask her to do one more, this time mentioning her children's names. So she records another version of her testimonial, dropping in her children's names, the children that she desperately wants to be with. I'm ready to go now, says Nora. The scientists talk to Nora and Matt. They usually like to give more orientation, but since they were about to move on, they'll have to do everything slightly differently. Men in hazmat suits walk past with a giant half globe with the body of a person burnt into the remains. Matt and Nora eye it suspiciously. Matt asks if that was a person, but the scientists point out it is a fossil. The person is gone. Maybe they'll let you keep mine, says Nora. Matt doesn't laugh. The scientists talk Nora through the process about what they're going to do to her before she enters the event chamber. It is a lot to take in, but Nora appears fine. She is going to go into the event chamber by herself, naked, wrapped into a ball. She will be able to hear the scientists, as Nora will also be able to be heard by them. They will fill the chamber full of fluids that have metals in them. Nora isn't allowed to breathe any of that in. She has to hold her breath for 30 seconds, and then that will be it. Before she goes in to the chamber, Matt and Nora sit together and play a Mad Libs game. This is how Matt is creating her obituary. The siblings are being silly together, laughing. Matt reads it back, and Nora thinks it couldn't be more perfect. She reminisces about the time she was sent off to some Bible camp and how much she hated it. The only thing that kept her sane was Matt sending her Mad Libs. She asks Matt if he remembers what he said to her when he put her on the bus. You said that I was the bravest girl on earth, says Nora. That's how he addressed Nora when he wrote to her. Nora is serious. She tells Matt that he drives her nuts, but he's always been a great man. Or Gecko, according to their recent Mad Libs game. Matt thinks he'd be great if he were trying to talk her out of this, but Nora says it is the opposite. Matt reveals he is scared, scared about what is going to happen when he returns to Mary. He's scared about what chemicals they're going to put into his body, and he's scared it won't work. I'm scared of dying, Nora, says Matt. He's scared his son will grow up and forget him, but he's also scared if he survives, how will he be able to stand in front of strangers and give them answers when he doesn't really know what he is talking about? Nora asks if he wants to come with her to the other place, but Matt declines. His place is here. She wants to know what Matt will tell people about what happened to Nora. Whatever you want me to, he says, his eyes barely holding back the tears. The scientists arrive and ask if she's ready. Of course she's ready, says Matt. She's the bravest girl on earth. Nora stands before the black tarp that covers the entrance to the truck, focusing on what comes next. She removes her dressing gown and walks the stairs. She is naked, alone. She enters and they bring the door down behind her. She looks around at the wires, the machinery, and takes a moment. She walks silently and thinks of her children. She can hear them on that fateful day. She walks up to the chamber, looks at the device that will burn her into another world. She gets in and closes the door. One of the scientists asks if Nora can hear, and when she acknowledges this, they bring in Matt to speak to her one last time. I love you, he says. Nora replies that she loves him too. And then the procedure begins. Noise, sound, machinery clicks into place. Nora can hear her breathing as the chamber pumps in this water. Her legs pulled up around her chest. She takes a deep breath, but... As the water rises, she tenses. There is a moment of panic as the water continues to rise around her shoulders, her neck, her jaw. Nora looks up and yells. It is a beautiful blue sky. A flock of pigeons come to land at an old home out in the middle of nowhere. It is Nora, older, removing the messages attached to the legs of the pigeons and throwing them away. She places them in cages, attaches them to the back of her bike, and she rides. We're back at the start of the season. We see Nora ride to see the nun and deliver the birds. She tries to make conversation, but Nora doesn't reciprocate. I don't normally get so many close together, the nun continues. Lovers in the air. She pays Nora, but before she can walk away, she says, Sarah, does the name Kevin mean anything to you? Nora stops, has a little think. No, she says. The nun wants to know if Nora is telling the truth. A man came by just the other day. He was looking for a Nora and had a photo of her. The nun points out that it looks exactly like her, like this Sarah. Nora asks her if she told him anything. The nun says, of course not. 
but she thinks he knew that she was lying. Nora looks unhappy about this. Soon she is back on a bike, riding back to her home. Her thoughts are her own. She makes her breakfast, a simple egg and bacon sandwich. She takes a bit in her mouth, has a think, and then jumps into action. She grabs a bag, fills it full of clothes, goes to the freezer and pulls out a secret stash of money. Nora adds what she just earned from the nun to her pile, slips it into her bag, grabs a jacket, and as she slips it on to make her escape, there is a knock at the door. Nora stops. There's panic in her eyes. She wonders what to do next. There's only one thing she can do. She opens the door. And there he is. Older. Greyer. More wrinkles. But it's Kevin. He looks at her. And he asks, Nora? Nora looks back, uncertain of what to say next. He introduces himself as Kevin Garvey. He used to be the police chief in Mapleton. They didn't really know each other very well. He talks about a Christmas dance at the high school and how they had a really nice conversation in the hallway. They both remember this moment. He says he doesn't expect her to remember because it was a long time ago. What are you doing? asks Nora. He says he's been wandering around Australia trying to get off the grid, avoiding all the tourist parts of the country, getting lost and enjoying it. He says he was in this little town and he saw her ride past on her bike. He recognised her as Nora Durst and found out where she lived and now he's here. But that's not what happened, says Nora. She points out that she showed a picture of her to the nun at the convent. That's how he found out where she lives. Kevin laughs and says, that is ridiculous. Why would he have a photo of her? Nora begins to argue the point, but Kevin asks if she's married, if she's seeing anyone. He noticed she wasn't wearing a wedding ring. He also noticed they're having a dance in the town tonight, and when he saw her riding the bike, it reminded him how much he wished he'd asked her to dance with him. Nora doesn't know what to say. Kevin says he knows it sounds crazy, but he's only in town one night, and since they're here in the middle of nowhere, he'd never forgive himself if he didn't ask her to dance with him. As he says this, his mouth turns down in the corners. It looks like he might cry. Nora tells him he has to leave. Kevin laughs. He gets it. A guy she barely remembers turns up out of nowhere and asks her to dance. Well, it was worth a try. Nora asks him to go. He points out that he'll be there anyway, they're closing down Main Street, so if she changes her mind, she will be able to find him. Kevin begins to walk off and then turns around. It was good to see you, Nora, he says, before turning back and walking away. Nora closes the door, she's overwhelmed, she smokes a cigarette to calm her nerves, her hands shaking, uncertain what to do next. Nora gets back on her bike and rides to a payphone and makes a call. A woman's voice says hello, but Nora barely lets him speak. She's angry. Nora wants to know if the woman on the other end of the phone told Kevin where she is. Nora is angry that Kevin found her. The voice on the other end is confused. Kevin's in Australia? Nora wants to know the answer. Did you tell him, Laurie? She asks. We see Laurie older, hair grey, a child sitting on her lap. Laurie hasn't told Kevin. She points out that they have clear boundaries. She doesn't tell anyone about Nora, and Laurie doesn't tell Nora about anyone where she lives. Laurie is just as surprised as Nora that Kevin has found her. She wants to know how he did it. Nora relays the story that Kevin told, that he was on vacation, that he saw her, that he visited her house, and acted as if they were just acquaintances, like nothing had ever really happened between them. Laurie's confused. Did he act crazy? Nora says no, he appeared happy. Laurie is still confused. She feels like this is very unkevin-like. Is there any, anything more? He asked me to a dance, says Nora. Now Laurie is really confused. Nora points out that there is some sort of dance in the town and Laurie begins to smile. She realises that Nora hasn't called her to get rid of Kevin. There's no way Laurie could do that since she's on the other side of the world. She also realises that deep down Nora knows that Laurie didn't tell Kevin where she is. No. Laurie realises that Nora is really ringing to ask if it is okay to go to the dance. Nora is furious. She yells at Laurie that she doesn't want to go to the dance. Laurie's smile grows even bigger. Same time next week, says Laurie. Nora hangs up in a moment of fury. She hops back on her bike and rides home. Back there, she locks the doors, the windows, draws the blinds and secures her home. Then she sits on her bed and makes a decision. She's going to have a bath. She fills the tub, picks up the old door and pulls it shut. She then enjoys her bath, relaxes. She brushes her teeth and looks at herself in the mirror. She's calm. 
But when she tries to leave the bathroom, the door is stuck. The door handle won't turn. And now she's locked in this home where nobody can find her. Nora yells. She hits the door again and again. And finally, the door falls over with Nora on top of it. She looks shocked. We see Nora ride her bike into the town where the big dance has taken over. People mill around. They're celebrating, having fun. They've all made an effort. They're dressed to the nines. Nora walks through the people, a ghost watching the living, untouched by those around her. A man asks where Nora's beads are, that she needs to have some. He tries to hand them over, but Nora declines, back to walking alone through the people. She looks around. She can't see Kevin anywhere. At the edge of the dance floor, Nora scans the crowd, but without seeing him, you can see she is beginning to feel foolish. Maybe she'll just go back home. And then she sees him, dressed in a suit, wearing beads. He's talking to a young woman, having a nice chat, holding her hand. The woman walks off and Nora steals herself. She makes her way to Kevin. And eventually, Kevin sees her. He's so happy to see her. He stands to greet her, but Nora points out it is a wedding when he said it was a dance. Kevin, smiling, replies, people are dancing. He pulls out a seat for Nora and they sit together. Nora wants to know if he was even invited. Kevin was. He points out the bride and groom, shares what he knows about them. He met them at the hotel bar and they said they'd be angry if he didn't come to their wedding. How did you find me, Kevin? says Nora. He looks at her. He says he was on vacation. He was wandering around and he saw her riding her bike. Nora points out this is the middle of nowhere. Why is Kevin here? He explains that his father came to Australia a while back, thought it was an amazing place, and now Kevin wanted to see it for himself. Nora asks if this is his first time in Australia. Kevin says yes. Nora wants to know if he's going to keep this up. Kevin looks back, smiling. He doesn't know what she means by that. Nora tries a different tact. If they only ever talked at the high school dance, what about that time in the courthouse? That was the time when they both got their divorces on the same day, when Nora asked Kevin to go to Miami. Kevin is confused. But they were strangers. He wants to know if that is the case. Why is Nora giving him a hard time about asking him to a dance? It's a wedding, says Nora. Kevin looks at her and says she must have him confused with someone else because if she'd asked him to go to Miami, he would have definitely gone. I love Miami, adds Kevin. Nora looks away. So if Kevin never left Mapleton, then he would have known her brother, Matt Jameson. Kevin looks at her and says that he was hoping she would have attended the funeral. Nora points out they said their goodbyes in person. Kevin says it was a beautiful service. Over 400 people came. Mary gave the eulogy. She really loved him. There was a lot to love, says Nora. How are Jill and Tom? Kevin is surprised that she remembers his kids' names. Nora nods. Yeah, she remembers. It's a little creepy, but I am impressed, says Kevin. Kevin tells her that Jill is great, married to a great guy. They have a daughter called Penelope. Kevin can't believe he's a fucking grandfather. Tommy's marriage didn't work out, but he's landed on his feet. Nora wants to know about Kevin. Did he ever get married again? He didn't. Nora wants to know, why not? Because I'm still holding a candle for you, says Kevin. Nora finds that hard to believe, but Kevin points out his mum died when he was nine years old and his father never remarried. People hold candles, Nora, says Kevin. She asks how his father is. Kevin Sr. is fantastic. They both laugh. He's still kicking around at 91 and for the first time they share a moment. Nora says he must be immortal, something that runs in the family. Kevin looks at her. He's not immortal. Kevin had a heart attack a few years ago. Turns out he's had an undiagnosed heart condition his whole life. They open him up and put a pacemaker in. It was a bad heart attack. Nora is still trying to work out what is real, but Kevin offers to show her his scar. Before they can continue, Maggie, the pregnant bride, comes over to say hello to Kevin and sits on his lap. She's having a great time. Kevin introduces her to Nora. Maggie hangs shit on Nora for not dressing up, but Nora is so apologetic that the bride has to wave her off. It's fine. She says to Kevin that Nora is very serious, something that Kevin wouldn't have any other way. Maggie wants to know if Kevin has written any messages for the pigeons, messages of love to take out to the world. Kevin has handed his message to the nun, who is also Nora's acquaintance. Nora, of course, declines to write one. Maggie laughs and moves on. Nora wants to know what Kevin said about her to Maggie. I said I had a crush on a girl but didn't know what to say, says Kevin. 
Nora doesn't know how to reply. Before they can continue, the bride and groom give a speech. It is fun. It is very Australian. They tell the crowd they have all their messages of love attached to the birds, and now they're going to release those messages to fly all over the world. The nun opens the cage, and the birds fly away. Nora watches on. She knows where those messages really go. They watch the birds fly away, and Nora turns to Kevin, wanting to know what he wrote. He leans in and whispers to her that it is for him to know and some lonely Eskimo to find out. The groom gives a speech. He talks about love, about marriage, about making mistakes. He points out the difference that a mistake is. That's just fucking up. A sin is when you know it is wrong, but do it anyway. He tells his new wife that he will continue making mistakes, but he will never sin again. They kiss. Everyone is happy. They cheer. A goat is brought out and the groom explains in the medieval times they would burden a goat with their sins and drive it away from the town to make them sin-free. The beads are their sins, so place them on the goat and let it take their sins far away. Nora and Kevin watch the beads placed over the goat's head. At least they didn't sacrifice it, Kevin says to Nora. She looks at him. This comment doesn't fit in with the story he's telling her. The goat sacrifices happened in Jarden, a place they supposedly never moved to. She asks if he's ever seen someone sacrifice a goat. Kevin says no, he hasn't. That'd be weird, he says. The goat is brought over and Kevin places his beads over the goat. He looks at Nora as music begins to play. He pauses and then he says, will you dance with me? Kevin leads Nora to the middle of the dance floor as Otis Redding plays. I've got dreams to remember. They're uncertain, unsure. He holds his hand out respectfully and she takes it. They begin to dance, looking at each other, leaning in. Nora gently places her face close to Kevin and he cautiously nuzzles into her. They dance. Nobody's looking at them. They're in a world of their own. Nora allows the moment to take her. She presses against Kevin, her lips close to his neck. He's smiling, emotional. Kevin doesn't want this moment to end. And then finally, Nora speaks. She wants to know how he found her. Kevin tells her he was out here on vacation. He saw her ride by. But Nora can't do this. She pushes him away. She tells Kevin she can't do this. But Kevin just doesn't understand. Why can't she do this? Because it's not real, she says. She walks away, leaving Kevin alone on the dance floor, watching her leave. Nora rides her bike through the night, determined to leave behind what just happened. She arrives home and is horrified to see that the birds haven't returned. She climbs a ladder to the top of the home and looks out with her binoculars. She doesn't see anything, so she hops back down and rides her bike to the nun's home. When she arrives, she sees a man crawling out of the top window via a ladder. He gets to the bottom, genuflects, sees Nora and says, Evening, before getting on a motorbike and riding off. Nora knocks on the front door. Nobody answers, so she keeps knocking. Eventually, the nun answers. Nora wants to know where her birds are. She figures that the nun did something wrong. The nun says that she did everything she was supposed to do. Nora doesn't believe her. The nun tries to be nice, says that maybe the birds are delivering messages of love. Nora knows that's bullshit, that the birds only exist within a 50-kilometres radius, so she can peddle her nonsense about love being spread, but don't try to sell that to Nora. I'm not trying to sell you anything, says the nun. It's just a nicer story. Nora wants to know who the man crawling out of the room via the ladder was. The nun doesn't know who Nora is talking about. Nora says that she knows that the nun's been having sex, but the nun scoffs at this. Nora tells the nun to swear to God, so the nun does, which infuriates Nora more. She tells the nun that she is a liar. The nun smiles and says that she saw Nora dancing with Kevin at the wedding, the man that she said that she didn't know. The nun says, I'll pray for the safe return of your birds, but Nora walks off telling the nun to save her breath. Nora rides home determined, but it is dark and she hits a pothole and flies over the top of her bike. She lays on the ground hurting. She gets up and finds beads all over the road, wrapped around her bike. She looks up and sees the goat, the beads trapping it to a fence, panicking. The hill is steep, the incline hard to crawl up. Nora slips and falls back to the ground. Thunder rolls across the sky as Nora tries again. She gets to the goat, the rain falling, and removes the beads, placing them around her neck. The next morning, Nora returns home, the goat with her, her clothes muddy. She places the goat in a safe place and sees that her birds still haven't arrived home. 
Nora goes inside, removes the beads and places them around the paper towel rack on her desk. She wipes the mud from her face as she looks at the colours of the morning sky. She puts food in a bowl for the goat, goes outside where it is eating the messages the birds have carried and makes a swap. While the goat eats, Nora reads some of the messages people have written. Shut up and kiss me, reads one. This pigeon loves you, reads another. Bruce has erectile dysfunction, reads the next one. Nora smiles as she reads the messages. I know you're out there, the last one reads. Suddenly Nora hears something. She looks up and sees Kevin getting out of his car. He walks towards her. He's emotional. You want to know how I found you, Nora, he says, walking. The truth is that when Matt told him she was gone, he couldn't believe him. He knew she had to still be alive, that he would see her again. Then when Matt died and she wasn't at the funeral, that should have convinced him. But he couldn't believe that the last time he'd see Nora was in the hotel the night he burned Matt's book. He was so sure she was still alive, even though everyone tried to tell him that Nora was dead. Every year, Kevin would take two weeks of holidays and he'd fly to Australia. He travelled year after year, driving around, looking for her. He'd show a photo to people, but they didn't know her. Every year, he'd promise to let it go, that he couldn't do it anymore. And then he'd fly back down and continue to look. When he showed the photo to the nun, he could tell by the response that she knew Nora. And when he finally saw her, Kevin couldn't believe it. There she was. And then he didn't know what to do, what to say. So he decided to erase their history in the hope it would give them another chance. But he believes Nora is correct. It wasn't true. And this is the truth to how he found her. He refused to believe that she was gone. Nora looks at Kevin. Want some tea? she says. Kevin at first mishears her, gets Nora to repeat what she said. She calmly asks him if he'd like to come inside and have a cup of tea. And Kevin says, okay. He's a little confused. (laughs) He thought there would be more conflict, but there's nothing except the wide open spaces of Australia where they can suddenly breathe. Inside, Nora serves him tea and sits opposite Kevin at her little table. She offers him a cigarette, but Kevin has finally quit because of his heart. Nora is curious. So that part of Kevin's story is true? As she puts away the cigarette, she asks Kevin what else is true. Everything I said about Matt's funeral, says Kevin. Everything I told you about Jill and Tommy, my father. Kevin tells her that he is still living in Jarden, in their home. Nobody really calls the place miracle anymore. Michael Murphy runs the church. He sees Erica every now and again, and she's great. John and Laurie still live next door. I talk to Laurie sometimes, says Nora. Kevin is stunned. Kevin realises that means Laurie knew Nora was still in Australia. Nora points out that he can't be angry, that Laurie is her therapist. She wasn't allowed to tell him. He asks why she didn't tell him. Nora says it is because what he said to her in the hotel, that she needed to be with her kids, that was correct. Kevin begins to refute this, but Nora points out he was right. There was always going to be a bulletproof vest or there was always going to be hugs from holy men tattoos to cover up they were just ways to deal with her loss and she needed to get them back nora made peace with the decision she knew there was a chance it would kill her she said goodbye to her brother she crawled into that machine and then you changed your mind says kevin no says nora i didn't change my mind i went through we cut to her final moments in that chamber but we don't see any more of what happened nora tells kevin She found herself in that parking lot, naked, curled up like a baby. It was the same parking lot she'd just been in, but no trucks, no people. She was cold and she started walking. Empty houses, empty buildings. She found a store that had clothes, so she dressed herself. She kept walking alone for so long that she was convinced she might be the only person alive in that lonely place. That night, she saw lights on in a house, so she approached it and found a nice man and woman. The man told him that seven years earlier, while he was in the supermarket, everyone around him disappeared. The woman said she lost her husband, her three children, and all eight of her grandchildren. And that's when Nora understood. In this world, they lost 2% of the people. But over there, they lost everyone. There was one thing to do, and that was to find her children. Not many planes fly, they have the resources, but not enough pilots, so Nora found a boat that would take her back to the States. Unfortunately, no boats go directly from Australia to New York, so it took her a long time to get there. By the time she arrived in the town she grew up, where her parents died, where Matt died, where she first met Kevin, 
The place was overgrown with weeds, but the lights came on at night. So Nora wondered if her family would still be there. She stood across the road and watched her home, the place where she lost everyone. She was too scared to go up and knock. Then after a while, the door opened, and at first she didn't recognise them. A tall teenage boy with curly hair and a girl, maybe 11, her children grown. And then her husband came out with a woman, a pretty woman. They were all smiling. Nora realised they were happy. And she also came to the conclusion that her family were the lucky ones. In a world of orphans, they still had each other. And Nora was a ghost who had no place there. And then that was when she changed her mind. The scientists had told her who was the first man to use the machine. It was the man who invented the machine. She was told by the scientists to look him up. And even though Nora is sure they were making fun of her, Nora did just that. But that also took a long time. She found him, asked him to make another machine to send her back, that she didn't belong in this place. So the man did, and Nora came back through and returned here. Did I think about you, says Nora? Did I want to call you? Did I want to be with you, Kevin? Of course I did. But so much time had passed. It was too late, and I knew that if I told you what happened, you would never believe me. Kevin looks at Nora, tears rolling down his cheeks. I believe you, says Kevin. Nora looks back. She's about to cry too. You do? she asks. Why wouldn't I believe you? Kevin replies. You're here. He leans across the table, his hand outstretched. She places her hand inside of his. Nora is crying. She smiles. I'm here, she says. She smiles. He smiles. We see them from outside, Kevin and Nora, lit up by the window. The goat walks away, and the lovebirds begin to return. So, confession time. I've waited months to reveal to you that the reason I wanted to cover the leftovers on this podcast was for a lot of reasons. But the main reason, the reason that stood out above all others, was that I wanted to talk to you about my favourite scene in any TV show. The moment Kevin and Nora dance together. Yep. This whole series has been about being able to talk to you about that one moment. But before we get to that, let's begin with this moment of happiness. Laurie is alive. I can't tell you how happy I was to see that she was alive in the future and hadn't killed herself when she went diving. It makes that scene in retrospect even more interesting to me because rather than going through with it, we're left to wonder... What was going through Laurie's mind the whole time? Did the talk of diving just remind her of something she would like to do to chill out? Did she plan on killing herself but decide not to after hearing from her children? Was she in two minds all along and only decided once she was underwater what she really wanted to do? Maybe her hand wavered over the knob ready to make it look like an accident and then the end, maybe she chose to live. I don't know what the answer is, but in the end, it doesn't matter. Just like the episode, it isn't important how she arrived at this point. It is important that she is here now, and that is all we have to care about. I not only love seeing Laurie again, knowing she was alive, but also imagining all the weird-ass conversations she had with Nora. I wouldn't want one more episode of The Leftovers. For me, this series is pitch perfect, but if there was one more episode... I'd love to see Nora and Laurie hanging out, more of this dynamic. Both are fascinating characters in their own right, and when you place them together, they bounce so well off each other. They're great to watch. This is, due to a couple of reasons, the characters beautifully written, but also the actors are formidable and wonderful. So three huzzas for Laurie being alive. We've got some interesting facts in the Squid Bits part of the podcast about Laurie too, so keep an ear out for that towards the end. And speaking of endings in the end, The Leftovers was a love story. Anyone who has followed Lindelof's work knows that he is at heart a romantic. You can see this in the best episode of Lost, The Constant. Oh, a glorious episode of television. And... It's also at the heart of Watchmen. Uh, Watchmen is essentially a love story that is doomed from the moment it begins, but still worth pursuing. And now in The Leftovers, we see that no matter how damaged we are, making connections in life and pursuing love is what makes living worthwhile. 
We've seen Kevin Garvey, the man who was chief of police in a small town, who died multiple times and travelled to a place where he could be an assassin, a cop, and the president, who was mistaken for a messiah, the man who does everything that everyone else wants of him but doesn't know deep down what he wants, travelling over and over again to a faraway place to look for the woman he loves, not knowing if she is still alive, still in this world, or even if she is, will she greet him with open eyes? arms. Kevin had a choice to make in the other world, where he was not only an assassin and the president at the same time, but also an unseen romance novelist. There were two versions of the novel, the one where he boards his boat, The Merciful, and continues to look for the woman he loved, and the version where he gives up. Ultimately, Kevin destroys this place because he chooses to live, and in doing so, he chooses to be the man who isn't a coward, who isn't afraid to look small, and is prepared to go searching for her. And now that he's an older man, a man who has been searching for the woman he not only loves, but also hurt because he was too afraid to give give himself over just completely. He isn't afraid to look foolish anymore. He's not afraid to look small. He's been driving around Australia for well over a decade, possibly close to two decades looking for Nora, showing her photo to anyone who might have seen her. What did all of those people think? How did all of those conversations play out. Think of Kevin getting older, greyer, wrinklier, and eventually with a weakened heart, driving around regional Australia looking for a woman who might be dead, and all the places he visited, all he did was talk about Nora. The Messiah has become the Apostle, dedicated to what he believes even though he has no proof. Think about Kevin just before this episode, driving around this town and suddenly seeing the nun's reaction. Imagine what that did for his old heart. You can picture him in the pub, meeting the soon-to-be-married couple, and he tells his story, a story that is sad but still full of hope. He tells his story and is invited to the wedding, because in a small town, that's what you do. He finally finds Nora and plays a card, a pretty out there card too, pretending to be a pre-relationship version of Kevin in the hope he can restart their relationship. Nora is cold towards him, angry, afraid, confused, and she sends Kevin on his way. But he still gets stressed up and he still goes to the wedding in the hope Nora will appear. Think about all of that and it just makes you feel like your heart might burst with emotion. The moment he sees Nora at the wedding... In her everyday clothes, the look of hope and love in his eyes, in Justin Thoreau's eyes, is overwhelming. Before we can talk about this, though, we also have to discuss Nora, beautiful Nora, the bravest girl in the world, finally acknowledging what Mark Lynn Baker was talking about in the hotel room, taking control of her life so she can finally be reunited with her children. Nora the skeptic, Nora who is often the smartest person in the room, Nora who can be so kind and cruel, finally taking a leap of faith. It makes sense that her brother would be by her side, the man who defined his life by his faith. Their final moments together are beautiful and encapsulates the right and wrong moves we often make in life. These siblings love one another, but his blind faith and her blind logic often force themselves on either side of the divide. But in the end, love conquers all, and stripped of the stories they tell themselves, the stories that define who they are, in the end they're a brother and sister who love each other very much, and also believe in one another. Their lives were mired in tragedy, but they never really lost one another. Yet what happened in that chamber? Did she call out and stop the process? Was she overcome with embarrassment and grief? So instead of reconnecting with her loved ones, decided to hide in Australia because she felt she had committed a sin by not trying to find her kids? Or did she go through? Maybe that was one last scream or breath of air before the chamber filled and... God, you know... She did have that whole experience. There are so many possibilities here, so many roads to travel down. On the one hand, you can definitely believe that she went through because Nora doesn't lie. She states this over and over again. So why, in the end, would she lie? But there's a number of issues with this, which include a simple fact. And that fact is, Nora does lie. 
She lies all the time. She lies about how she is really feeling. She lies about what drives her anger. She lies about why her arm had plaster on it. She lies about the coffee cup smashing on the floor at the cafe in Mapleton. She could easily be lying now, maybe to cover up her embarrassment at not going through. It is also possible that if she didn't go through, this is a story she has just told herself over and over and over again until now it has become her truth, her fact. Lies are easy. The nun does it with conviction. Kevin lies about the life they live to such an extent. Nora can't work out if he's insane. Or maybe this is a version of Kevin from a parallel universe. Of course Nora could be lying. Contrary to her protests, Nora is a very good liar. If Nora did go through, that also opens up a lot of questions. Why didn't the doctor who invented the device take his findings to the world and begin to work on a way to reunite the two Earths? Did Mark Lynn Baker go over there and have to live in secret? Or did he pretend he was hiding in Mexico again and then just pop up? Or maybe he reunited with his old sitcom pals and rebooted Perfect Strangers. How sad is that world where 98% of people disappeared? Why didn't Nora come back and let some of these people know what happened to their families and friends? In the end, it doesn't matter whether Nora is telling the truth or not. The result ends up being the same. She either did or didn't travel to the other place, but the outcome lands in this moment. She missed out on the chance of reuniting with her children with a sense of self-loathing. She stayed in Australia alone incapable of connecting with anyone but the birds that spread the good intentions of love to the world. I love Nora so much and I want to believe her story, but I also believe that these actions are very much in character, that she may have just been hiding all these years. To be honest, look, I want to believe that she went through because... (laughs) Mainly because I can't stand the idea of that doctor being able to smugly smile at Nora after she believed she wouldn't go through with it. (laughs) In all honesty, I have changed my mind on whether I believe Nora or not. It changes with each viewing, and I have watched this episode a lot. In the end, though, I am like Kevin. If this is a story, whether it is true or not, doesn't matter. It is all about having faith in Nora, tough, strong, vulnerable, caring, angry Nora, the bravest girl in the world, the woman who couldn't believe in herself. Kevin believes Nora. He doesn't believe in a higher power. He believes in the person who is in front of him. And if this is what she wants to tell him, then that is the story he will hear. The relief that Nora shows at the end of her tale, while Kevin holds her hand, that she can now finally move on from her grief and share her life once again, is almost too much to watch. It is a bursting of the dam. It is the end of the facade. We've seen this look on this face twice before, once when she found Lily, and the second time when she was surrounded by her new family and the man she loved returned home. Now they're equals. They've laid it all out. They've told their stories, and none of it matters anymore. They're here together, that their journeys led back to them sitting opposite each other, older, wiser, but deeply connected, It's not what I expected, but it is exactly what I wanted. This show could have gone in many different directions, but to paraphrase the nun, this is just a nicer story. In The Leftovers, characters flash to moments from their past when they're in certain situations. When I talk about this series, I immediately flash to Kevin and Nora dancing. The sepia tones of the scene, the perfect use of Otis Redding, the way Kevin tentatively asks Nora to dance and the gentle way he holds out his hand, the sad smile Kevin gives her as he leads her to the dance floor and once there, uncertain, two people who were once intimate so many years ago, not sure how to touch one another, how to connect. And the dance begins and Nora finds that place where she can slip perfectly into his body, her face pressed against him. I watch this scene and believe this is the first intimate contact either of them have experienced in a long time. They're scared because they both want this to happen. I love the tightness of the shot. I only want to see Kevin and Nora at this point. I don't care about anyone or anything else. I just desperately want these two characters to be happy and to feel safe. 
yet Nora isn't quite there yet and she has to ask. And Kevin has to stay with his story. This isn't the time to be real. Nora isn't ready. She still has obstacles to overcome. She still has to reconcile the nun's story, the lost love pigeons, the struggling goat, the Sisyphean moment of taking the sins of a town and placing them around her neck. She needs to endure all of this to place her in the most important moment of the episode for me. We need to see her reading the notes that people wrote attached to the previous pigeons, some beautiful, some funny. And we need to watch her as she reads them without judgment. We need to watch her enjoy each message for what the writer intended. This is the moment when I knew she was ready for Kevin. The dance, though, that romantic holding of each other after being absent from their lives, this is the key to the whole series. It doesn't matter that she leaves him on the dance floor and Carrie Coon's acting here as she walks and we watch her face transform from sadness to termination is unbelievable. We see in her eyes the rebuilding of the walls that Nora has comfort in hiding behind. But the dance is a reminder When the world feels unbearable, when life feels overwhelming, when we can come to terms with the fact that we all have our scar tissue and that our mistakes don't have to define who we are. In the end, if we can reach out to those who love us and hold them in our arms, this is what makes life worthwhile. This is why we live and cherish life. In the end, if we can believe in each other, then hopefully we can find a level of grace to live our lives and not worry about what comes next. In the end, it is better to live in the moment and let the mystery be. Okay, time for the final squid bits. Let's get into it. Quite a few, actually, for this uh, finale, as you can well imagine. Uh, When the groom talks about goats being driven into the wilderness, that is referencing Leviticus 16.10, which is where the term scapegoat comes from. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Uh, Did you see the last mention of Cairo in the Matt Libs obituary, which says she was born and raised in Cairo, Egypt? So that was very much a a Tasty McGovern that... um, uh, that National uh, Geographic magazine. Never Neverland is the fictional island from J.M. Barry's 1904 play Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up and Barry's 1911 novel adaptation Peter and Wendy, which is also known simply as Peter Pan. Uh, feels like it was a Game of Thrones reference when the groom tells his wife she is my son and my stars, which is Daenerys' term of endearment for Carl Drogo. Matt tells Nora she is the bravest person in the world, an episode after Kevin was told he was the most powerful man in the world. Nora being freaked out about being locked in the bathroom seems right, considering there looked like a moment when she panicked in that claustrophobic chamber. Kevin now has a pacemaker in the same spot that the key was implanted in the previous episode. Each season ends with Nora speaking to Kevin. The last lines are, season one, look what I found. Season two, you're home. Season three, I'm here. HBO's synopsis for this episode is nothing is answered, everything is answered, and then it ends. <laughs> I remember reading that the first time and it made me laugh so much. Uh, for any old school Lindelof fans out there, when Kevin says he's been wandering around Australia and he enjoys getting a little lost, it feels like a gentle shout out to Lost, which not only has a flight that begins in Australia, but also has an ending that is much maligned by people who didn't watch the show properly. Yep, that's me having a dick. <laughs> Uh, set designers consulted with physicists so they could base the machine's design on the Large Hadron Collider and Stellarators, which were built decades ago in an attempt to sustain nuclear fusion through magnetism. Even in the script direction, Nora doesn't yell anything as the chamber is filling up. Nora is, according to the script, around 50 in the future sequence, which means maybe this is taking place around 2029, 2030, if that's Nora's age. If we're going by Kevin Senior's age, with him being 91, I think that probably makes it 2032. Uh, Hopefully we'll be out of lockdown by then. (laughs) 
I kind of meant that as a joke, but I immediately felt bummed out. <laughs> um, Kevin staying off the grid while he's in Australia recalls his father on the cassette tape. Remember when he says, Garvey men do not follow AAA maps that are designed to take travellers to tourist destinations? Um, okay, so here's some really interesting stuff. Lindelof said that no idea divided the writer's room more than the question whether Laurie killed herself or not. Lindelof first proposed Laurie shoot herself, which came up against a lot of opposition from the writers, especially the two writers credited with this episode, uh, which are Patrick Somerville and Carly Ray. Nick Hughes proposed the scuba diving scenario. This indecision held up the writing of the last episode, and Lindelof said that he was 95% certain Laurie had killed herself until he saw the way Amy Brenneman performed the scene. The writers then realised that by having the moment where Laurie doesn't tell Jill and Tom where she is, then that defeats the idea of making the dive look like an accident. So when they knew they needed to have Nora ring someone, it was between Erica and Laurie, and they realised Laurie was the better option. Lindelof in the end said... I think that the intention on our behalf always was that Laurie was going to go scuba diving and she would decide when she was under the water whether or not she would turn the knob. But going scuba diving is her way of testing her resolve after having said goodbye to Kevin and Nora for what she believes to be probably the last time. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I just uh, was fixing a few. <laughs> uh, I just saw a couple of uh, writing errors and there was just enough in a row that I was like, oh, I need to fix that now. And then I realized oh, I haven't been talking for a second. Um, <laughs> where did he go? Uh, just just saw those little annoying red lines underneath. Anyway, um, Okay, what else do we have for you? In case you're wondering what the future looks like, if you watch closely, you can see the Telstra payphone is solar-powered. Um, the wedding sequence was filmed at the Victoria Gold Rush Ghost Town Clunes. The look was inspired by Bachelor and Spinster Balls, as well as a hipster's take on bogan culture. FYI, for my Australian friends, on Wiki, uh, they described uh, bogan as hillbilly. Does that seem right? Maybe I'm going to have to look up what hillbilly means. I feel like I have a. I never saw Bogan as being able to play the banjo, and that's what I see hillbilly as, right? Or am I being very unfair with all of this? Maybe they are matchy matchy. Who knows? Anyway, interesting. Uh, Nick Cuse came up with the idea that their date take place at a wedding, and that idea was inspired by a scene in Up in the Air, which is. Oh, maybe that's my favourite George Clooney movie. I found it quite confronting as well. Uh, anyway, that's a story for another time. <laughs> it's a good movie, though. I think it's, well, I, I personally think it's a really good movie. Uh, the undiagnosed heart condition might actually be damage sustained from his repeated deaths. The writers wanted there to be physical consequences to all the damage and all the all the moments that Kevin has already lived. Well, like, so that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, the pigeons and the goat were two different ideas that made their way into the script, and they had both animals reflecting the different bride and groom's POV. On the set, Kevin and Nora danced to Bob Seger's We've Got Tonight, but that was dropped when Mr. Robot used that song. Like, whew, I'm so glad that they didn't use the Madonna song at the end of season two, and I'm so glad that they went with Otis Redding, which also calls back to uh, Otis Redding is playing uh, at the dinner table in season one when Nora goes and visits for the first time and Jill's a bit of an arsehole to her. So, yes, that's much better. Sometimes constraints and mistakes can work in your favour. Nora climbing onto the roof to look for the pigeons calls back to the Millerite sequence at the start of season three. Uh, after taking the beads that represented the community's sins and placing them around her neck, she then hangs the beads on her paper towel rack, which once represented Nora's guilt surrounding her children's disappearance. In the original script, Kevin tells Nora that he lets everyone think he's off on adventures for his holidays, so they don't know that he's really going to Australia. But Justin Thoreau thought it was extraneous, that the scene already implied that, so they dropped that part. This scene only would have pointed out that Laurie really didn't have any idea that Kevin was down under, but I feel like I got that anyway. Like, that was all, that all made sense to me. I think Thoreau's, um, Instincts on that were correct, and I'm glad they followed them. Uh, when Lindelof first met Tom Perotta, he asked if Perotta knew where The Departed had gone. The author replied that he never really thought about it. 
but Lindelof said for the show to work he needed his own answer, even if they never told it. It was while shooting the pilot that Lindelof came up with the idea that the world had flipped. When they were on location, Lindelof asked director Peter Berg to shoot an alternate version of the opening departure sequence depicting the flip side where baby Sam remains and his mother's voice while she's on the phone abruptly cuts out followed by a father calling for his son. Lindelof thought this might be a perfect way to end the series, but in the end they were losing light and didn't have time to get the shot. Once again, you know, we were just saying restrictions can lead to much better solutions. And uh, yeah, thank goodness they didn't film that because they might have felt compelled to to use it. But I, 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 just, I just think everything's perfect. I love the way it's ended and did not need to see that. In the writers' room before season three began, they determined that the course of the show and the central journey of the season would be Nora's. They knew they wanted to move the action to Australia because of the influence of Peter Weir's movies on season two and three, those movies, of course, being The Last Wave and Picnic at Hanging Rock. They did toy with the idea of the seventh anniversary leading to the end of the world, but in the end decided that the human themes and the idea of what happens when the apocalypse fails to materialise was far more interesting. The initial two through lines conceived for the final season were Kevin learning that Matt had written a gospel about him and that forcing him to become a reluctant messiah, which was influenced by Life of Brian, the Monty Python masterpiece. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Uh, The other story, of course, was Nora finding out about the ladder machine. Originally, they were going to film Nora in the flipped universe where 98% of people disappeared. Parada was adamantly opposed to this idea he didn't want to definitively answer the question of where the departed went because that moment is analogous to the mystery of where we go when we die Parada turned the writer's room around and then writer Patrick Somerville proposed the compromise of Nora telling someone the story of the other place over tea this allowed the audience to decide whether or not the story is true Nora makes tea was then added to the whiteboard, and once the whole writer's room was assembled, the rest of the season was reverse-engineered with the goal of making this moment. Other ideas that were on the whiteboard that didn't make the cut, Nora and Laurie going on a road trip to Jacksonville. Uh, See, there I am saying I don't want any more uh, episodes, and then it's like, I could have had that, but no, 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 happy with what I've got. Uh, Nora, other stories that didn't get... Uh, use where Nora gets vaporised and two days later Kevin arrives and goes through after her which would then lead the audience to wonder if both characters went through or died oh yuck no Uh, a huge massacre nearly occurred and there was also the idea Kevin using the hotel room to find Nora after she dies there was also a moment where Nora told her story to a teenage Lily who had tracked her down. They realised it was more satisfying that the story is told to Kevin. Lindelof has stated that he knows 100% whether or not Nora is lying, but along with the other writers, will never state this is what really happened. Lindelof has said that he wanted every season finale to restate the conclusion of Parada's novel, that people can be okay again and form attachments after the departure. In the book, Nora prominently rides a bicycle for miles every day. In the book also, Kevin does accept her invitation to go to Miami. And also in the book, uh, they don't say where everyone went, but there is a point where Kevin is talking to Jill about her best friend, Jen, and then says, what if she is still there and we just can't see her? So it's kind of touched upon, isn't it? It's a little bit like uh, the graphic novel series, Why the Last Man, which gives you, I think, about half a dozen uh, possibilities for how uh, or why all the men or all the males died, uh, but never never lands on one. And I like that. Okay, final squid bit for you. Here we go. As you know, this podcast is a place where my friends and I attempt to celebrate the world of art and entertainment. I'm a believer of stories and uh, what we can learn from them in all their forms. Sometimes art can inspire a thought or a feeling that you just can't put your finger on. But you feel it. You feel it in the chest, pushing against your ribs. You can feel it smothering your heart. And after I finished The Leftovers the first time, this was when I was living in Sydney. I'd had a really 
kind of down couple of last years in Melbourne. I was bereft of inspiration, uncertain of where I wanted to be or what I wanted to do next. And this show came along at the right time for me. It helped me find my way forward through a lot of stuff that I'd been thinking thematically. And I never really related to any one character. I felt like I was everyone in some way. I loved every episode and honestly, as I keep saying, wouldn't change anything in the series. And the dance scene for me though, damn, the feeling it invoked in me was something I still can't express to this day. I don't really know what it was, but even now talking about it, I can still feel it while I think about it. And in the end, I really wanted to express that feeling. And so that led me to uh, go in a very different direction with the next shows that I wrote because if I can't define it but I want to express a feeling, then you have to do it through the prism of you and what you do and your experiences and your skill set and your work. So for anyone who got to see those shows, I wrote... Uh, a three-part show called The Ballad of John Tildanimus. It was a deeply personal show that reflected every aspect of me, but I wanted to create it in a way that allowed anyone to see it, to have their own thoughts on what it all meant. Because that's the stuff that I love. I love. I wasn't just watching The Leftovers at this point, and uh, I think at the same time I was watching Twin Peaks, The Return. I was watching... Uh, Fargo, I was watching Legion, and these were all these shows that allowed you to kind of, you know, fit in between the gaps and and have your own thoughts, and and that they kind of forced you to interact with them. And so, basically, what I did was uh, I wanted my distinct experiences of life to be universal. So I created those shows to hopefully put something creative back out there for people to find. So the show uh, won some awards, uh, but was also not widely seen. And that is okay. It's only ever really appeared in uh, Adelaide and Melbourne and in its first iterations in uh, the the first part in Sydney. And I look back on them now and realise they are very much final shows. Uh, I don't think I will. I'm not saying that I won't write shows again, but I feel like they closed uh, a door on an aspect of me or a version of me or a part of me. So I feel fundamentally different now that they've been produced and I haven't really had much of an urge to write a new show. Not not at the moment anyway. And... uh, I don't know if I'll perform them again because I doubt I could find the emotional truth to get back to those shows to be able to perform them correctly. And that's okay. Uh, If you're a part of our private Facebook page, you can still find the links there I left to see those shows. I just put them up in the private page. So if you haven't seen them, uh, you know, maybe uh, you can come and uh, check them out. Uh, But they are designed to be interpreted and they're designed to be uh, talked about. And... So that's my last squid bit, I guess. The squid bit is that particular scene inspired such a deep and rich emotion in the back of my head that it inspired me to create those shows. And that kind of sums up what Big Squid is all about. It's about finding inspiration and and finding words that help you express or feel things that might be uh, beyond your reach if you hadn't uh, engaged with them. But, you know, I think that's all great art. I think all, all art is a conversation. And just as Nora and Kevin left me wondering, I hope anyone who saw those shows were inspired to engage with it in a way that helped shine a light on any shadows that may follow them around. Anyway, ah, this show makes me feel poetic. (laughs) Not very good poetry, but it makes me feel very emotional. That's us done for season four of Big Squid. We're at the end. Thank you to all of my guests and friends who joined me through lockdown. There was a lot of these episodes, a lot of this season was produced in uh, lockdown. Uh, You know, it's been... 
challenging. I'm doing okay, by the way, so don't worry about me. But I know there's a lot of people out there struggling. So I hope uh, if you are one of those people, you are finding your way through it. And uh, if you know people who are, I hope you are in a place that you can be of some help and uh, that they appreciate that as well. with the podcast, I hope you've all had a good time. Uh, maybe you have a new appreciation for Sophia Copler, or you checked out the books by Alex Hammond and Ryan Hughes, or maybe you're listening to Alex J's podcast, or I don't know. Like, you know, maybe you've gone and checked out Garth Jones' work. Uh, maybe you've seen some of these people live or checked their work in other mediums. I really appreciate all of the kind words and the feedback from you. We're taking a few weeks off so I can prep season five, which is already underway. Like, we've already got a few episodes ready to go. So, once we come back, we will be motoring. And uh, when we come back, we'll also have a Patreon set up. We'll have the Space Podacy series ready to go. That'll be on this feed, so don't worry. Uh, We will have the first David Lynch movie to cover. We've got some new segments. We've got some returning segments. We've got a few other treats. Uh, that we are going to share with you as well. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a top review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Big Squid. If you'd like to stay across when we're back, you can either subscribe to the podcast or head over to our Facebook page. I reckon it'll only be a few weeks, so, you know, but we'll be, but yeah, just a, just a bit of a break so I can fuck, you know. I turn 49 next week, so, you know. <laughs> Let me be bummed out about that for a week and then uh, I'll get back on track. Um, In the meantime, if you want some nice people to hang out with uh, until we return here, you can come and join our private page. Everyone there is great. There's lots of uh, interesting things going on. I always pop in and go, oh, that's what they're talking about. And uh, the link is still there for the Ballad of John Tilde Animus. So if you want a three-part show that is a little bit different, uh, and is in the vein, uh, not necessarily story-wise, but uh, spirit-wise of The Leftovers. Uh, if you'd like to see that show, come and check it out. Download it. It's all free. Let's finish the season with a quote from Damon Lindelof. I think that at the end of the day, I'm drawn to a certain level of ambiguous storytelling that requires hard thought and work in the same way that the New York Times crossword puzzle does. Sometimes you just want to put it down or throw it out the window, but there's a real rewarding sense if you feel like you've cracked it. Thanks for everything this season. I look forward to catching up with you very soon. Until then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.